Two and a Half Admins, episode 141. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara article plug is leveraging OpenZFS to build your own storage appliance. Yeah, so if you've ever been interested in building your own storage appliance or, or building a product based on ZFS, we have some practical tips and information over here in the article. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Andreas Kling from Serenity OS put up a post, how we're building a browser when it's supposed to be impossible. Now, we covered Serenity OS, it must be a couple of years ago at this point, and this is a totally from scratch OS, and I seem to recall it was kind of part of his uh, substance abuse recovery, that he was uh, just spending all his time creating this this cool open source OS. And uh, this is kind of explaining how you can write a browser from scratch, even when it is incredibly complicated to do so because web standards have become so complex. Right, and Andreas's answer is basically just Leroy Jenkins your way in there, get started, do it, make it happen. He talks about the impossibility of coding to every single web standard that has floated across the page for the last 10 years. And, you know, a lot of sites expect pieces of all those various different standards. So that's why it's so difficult to code the browser. But he expressed the idea that it's better to get your browser out there and make incremental improvements to make a particular site that you really want to log into or want a particular feature on to work. Just like, go ahead and do it. And that will magically fix issues on hundreds of sites you never thought about when you fixed the one issue on the one site that you did care about right then. Yeah, make Discord work. And then suddenly loads of other sites will just magically work. Exactly. Now, with that said, I love Kling. Like that, he, he's my dude. But so far, he hasn't really done much more in the way of making an alternative browser than anybody else has. I did go ahead and spin up the latest versions of Serenity. And by spin up, I mean build from source today and uh, fired up. And, and I played with the browser a little bit. And um, sometimes it will load YouTube. Usually it won't. It won't ever be entirely <laughs> functional. And there are any number of situations in which like the browser will lock up randomly while trying to access a particular site. And like once it's done it, it won't come back. You're going to have to kill the whole window and fire it up again to be able to play the roulette wheel on the same or a completely different site. So he has not made a usable browser yet is the point. I'm rooting for him, but he hadn't done it yet. Well, the kind of the, the inset that he has here from Drew DeVault's blog, where he's like, okay, so there's 1,217 W3C specifications. And so he W-getted all of those down and totted it up with word count. And that's 114 million words. Whereas if you download the specs for C11, C17, the entire UEFI stack, USB 3.2, POSIX, and all 8,754 published RFCs for the internet, and the combined work of everything on Wikipedia's list of the largest, longest novels, you only come up with uh, 12 million words short of what's in the W3C spec. So yeah, that's a lot to try to implement to say you have a web browser, but I also don't think that Google and Mozilla necessarily actually implement all 114 million words of those specs. Oh, they absolutely do not. But the the point remains that it, it's very hard to come into this struggle as a third party because while Google and Mozilla are only honoring parts of all those specs, they have the advantage that they have evolved right along with all the web code out there. 
And all the code is designed to work in Chrome and in Firefox. Exactly. So at this point, very few people are coding to a standard. What people are actually coding to is it worked in you know, whatever my browser of choice is. And maybe if I'm really generous. <laughs> yeah, maybe if I'm being really generous, I also worry about <laughs> another browser to make sure it doesn't only work in my favorite browser. But really, that's that's how web apps are getting coded these days. It really reminds me of the days with, you know, Internet Explorer 4 versus Netscape. It's got to the point where if it wasn't Internet Explorer, it wasn't going to work. And then finally, Mozilla came on the scene and started to push that. And we started to get something like standards. But now everything's collapsing back to Google's engine with Edge. And as far as all being based on that same backend, we're getting back to the point where it works in this one thing. And maybe there's a second thing, but nothing is a standard anymore. Well, Blink and WebKit are related, but not 100% the same. Like, they have kind of forked off from each other. So you do have three standards now, effectively, three bases for your browsers. Your Apple iOS ones, Chromium-based ones, and Firefox. But, yeah, increasingly, it is what Google's doing that is driving the standards here. Right, and I'm just reminding people, do we really want to be in the situation of Internet Explorer 4 again? Because that's where we're headed. Well, yeah. And what Andres is doing here is proving a point almost that even someone with his remarkable talents can't make a a fully functional browser because it is too hard. Even though the whole post is about the fact that it's not impossible, he's kind of proving the point that it is, right? That it's impossible to make a fully functioning browser, at least with a small team. This is a work in progress. And Andreas Kling has pulled off some things that nobody would expect any one developer should be able to pull off. He's also pulled off things as a team leader that are pretty amazing as a team leader. So I I don't want to say that he can't write that browser, but I do want to say that, again, he, he hasn't done it yet, and I'm rooting for him. Well, yeah, you have to think back to even when Firefox started, they had some code base to start from, and... I remember the early days where there was a lot of websites that didn't work and you couldn't quite use Mm. Firefox as your daily driver. You get by most of the way, but there would be some site somewhere where you'd have to fire up IE or something in order to get it done. And I'm glad we got away from that. But even what is a mainstream browser was at the same point in, in the past. So it's not to say it can't be done, but I think you'd have to start seeing a much bigger effort behind it in order for it to get anywhere soon. There was certainly a lot less functionality to replicate when Firefox muscled IE out of the way or when IE muscled Netscape out of the way or when Chrome showed up even. Far, far less functionality that needed to be replicated in order to produce something that would be recognizable as a fully functional modern web browser. Yeah, you weren't running Windows 95 VMs in your browser, were you, back then? It's almost getting to the point that if... As long as you have a good JavaScript engine, how much more is there left? But turns out a lot. <laughs> like even just implementing CSS, there's just so much to that now. It's not just some basic styling and coloring. You know what's really sad though is that Alan, you said there was a time when certain websites wouldn't work in Firefox. And I feel like we are slowly but surely returning to those times where there are certain things that just won't work in Firefox anymore, and you need Chrome or at least something Chromium-based to make them work. I've not hit many of that. I've, I've hit some websites that suggest 
Chrome where it won't work, but Firefox has continued to work. But yeah, that's another fear of mine. It's like, I like my Firefox. I don't want to use Chrome. Please don't make me. Yeah, well, you're a known freedom lover, aren't you, Alan? Yeah. I can't say I've had much of the kind of problem where something genuinely won't work in Firefox, but there's just enough of it that if you're the kind of person that has to figure out why something's broken when it's broken, you you need more than one browser around so you can cross that possibility off the list. I find that I'm more likely to have an issue on mobile than on desktop in terms of actually having an issue where I have to use a specific browser. It seems like mobile is more likely to present me with that. Yeah, I remember, it must have been about five years ago now, that Google Maps just basically didn't work in Firefox. It would just crash all the time, would be really slow. You'd open it in Chrome, surprise, surprise, Google's browser, it would work absolutely perfectly. And I I don't think there's malice there. I don't think that was Google deliberately trying to break it in Firefox. It was just them not caring. They just didn't care, didn't test it in Firefox. Wasn't a priority for them. And that's the danger, I think, that as the Firefox market share continues to decline, developers just won't test stuff in it. And there's no conscious choice to make stuff not work in it. It just gets left behind. Well, it's just what happens when you're coding to an engine rather than coding to a standard. Yep. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Factor. During the prime spring season, you need wholesome, convenient meals to energize you for warmer, more active days and keep you on track reaching your goals. Factor can help you fuel up fast with ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. With Factor, skip the trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, preparing and cleaning up too. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat them up and enjoy. Factor offers delicious, flavor-packed options on the menu each week to fit a variety of lifestyles, including keto, vegan and veggie, protein plus and calorie smart, which has meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. Jim tried Factor and said the meals were quick and easy to prepare and liked that there was plenty of variety. So support the show and go to factormeals.com slash 25A40 and use code 25A40 to get 40% off your first box. That's code 25A40 and factormeals.com slash 25A40 to get 40% off your first box. Turns out that the relatively new Ryzen 7000X 3D CPUs have been having some heat problems where they've been essentially frying themselves unless you have the very latest BIOS update. To be fair, it seems that it's possibly a problem with the motherboard or the motherboard firmware allowing too much voltage to the CPU. Also, we're not real sure of the scale of this problem yet. I have not seen in any of the news reports on it any real indication of how many people are having this problem. So that makes it a little difficult to to go anywhere with. But um, one thing that's probably worth pointing out here is these issues are specifically with the X3D series of processors. And if you're not familiar with what that means, those are the versions of the processor that have an additional layer of L3 cache sitting on top of the processor itself. So you've basically got a layer of insulation in between the majority of the CPU, the brains, if you will, and the actual cooling solution which can make it a good bit more sensitive to issues that might be introduced by, for example, overvolting. Yeah, and so MSI has released a BIOS update that will basically limit and disallow any kind of overvolting features, and that, they think, will resolve the issue. They're really 
fascinating image here of a CPU that is deformed and basically bulged out in one spot, and that is burnt and bent the pins in the CPU socket in the corresponding location on the motherboard. They let lots of magic smoke out of that one. (laughs) In short, if you've got one of these processors with the extra layer three cache sitting on top of it in between the CPU itself and your cooling solution, it's a great processor design. I don't think anybody should be turned off of that design. It's just not going to be a good fit for overclockers. If you've got an X3D series, I would leave the clock settings on your motherboard to factory default. Now, if that includes precision boost overdrive, which is AMD's own like built-in right from the factory attempts to speed up a single core for uh, you know for your, for your single thread workload. If you want to leave PBO turned on, that's one thing, but I think that's probably about as hot as you really ought to get it with one of these processors. Let's do some feedback then. And lots of people told us about Pass, passwordstore.org, because we had brainstormed a very basic command line password manager. And it turns out that this existed. I kind of knew about this, but I'd forgotten about it when we recorded. I did not know about it, but I'm not surprised about it because all I was really doing in that episode was brainstorming essentially how would you create a password manager using the Unix philosophy, which guess what? That's exactly what the design paradigm of pass was to begin with. Implementing a password manager using the Unix philosophy. And then I noticed the name in the example and realized who the author is. Oh, how about that? It's the WireGuard guy. Yeah, that's that's Donenfeld, CX2C4, huh? Discovering that this was written by Jason Donenfeld actually bumps up the uh, trust level considerably, for me at least, because... The concept was already pretty obviously, in my opinion, a a decent concept because you literally are just implementing the Unix philosophy as applied to passwords. So you know the concept is good. Knowing that this was something created by Donenfeld gives me a lot of additional confidence about the quality of the code. And for that matter, the understanding of the realities of encryption and decryption and how to genuinely make something secure or not. Like this is not just some random sysadmin who hacked together a couple of things in a day, like if y'all had made me write this thing, this was actually the WireGuard guy building a password manager. Yeah, it looks like it's it's got some decent history. The copyright notice at the bottom of the page goes back to 2012. So it looks like it might have a decent amount of history behind it too. Maybe we should instead have been exhibiting uh, extra confidence in WireGuard because it was written by the pass guy. Possibly. Marcus writes, you often speak of the sysadmin hunt around data breaches. I feel like there's a story here and would love to hear it, at least from Jim. I mean, there's a million stories there. It's like hearing somebody talk about a locker room mystery and saying there's got to be a story there. Well, there's a lot more than one. It's a it's a whole genre. The sysadmin hunt basically just refers to a particular style of breach where an attacker will first identify the sysadmins in an organization and then specifically individually target them, knowing that you know the sysadmins generally have access to all the fun toys. As far as a particular story, I've actually told it on air before, I think on this specific podcast as well. The short version is I was uh, doing operations for a very large gaming website many years ago, and a particularly motivated individual, Advanced Persistent Threat, decided that I was going to be his way into that large gaming site. And he devoted about the next year of his life into rolling me up like a rug and succeeded at which point I got to demonstrate that I really was capable of restoring the entire highly trafficked website 
which was not a server in a bottle type of thing. I mean, you know, there's, there was a whole farm of, of different applications that had to get put together to serve the application. I got to bring all of it in from backups <laughs> the next day. It was a very, very long day and not a whole lot of fun. I will cap off that story with the other part. When I said that the attacker rolled me up like a rug, I really meant rolled me up like a rug to the point that I had to tell every single client that this attacker had been on their systems. And I could tell all of my clients I knew how the attacker got there. I knew what they had done. I knew how to make certain that the attacker would not come back in and, uh, When I sent out the emails to all of my clients telling them about that, I didn't know if I would have a consulting firm at the end of that day. As it turns out, I did not lose a single client. Most of them really just weren't particularly concerned about it at all. It was a thing that I told them about and I had a plan for, so they were fine with it. Some were concerned about it, but even the ones that were concerned came to the conclusion that, well, we would rather have the guy that tells us when this happens than doesn't tell us. And we'd have never known if you hadn't said anything. So let's proceed as we've been going. And since then, I have been a far, far harder target to crack. What got you in the end then? So the way that they got in, at the time, I was an unknown. Nobody had really heard of me. And my threat model was based around that fact. And I thought that having a single... Oh, this hurts just to say this. Um, This was more than a decade ago. And at the time, I thought that given that I had, I I did not have a threat profile of somebody that was well-known, I thought that it would be okay to have a single password that would get me into all of my clients' stuff as long as it was strong password that I never, you know, reused for anything different. And I was incorrect. And our friendly little attacker, probably Romanian, not certain, but... uh, We'll just say the Romanian, our our Romanian friends, what they actually did is they found a former client of mine, managed to get in on that former client's machine by compromising the uh, MySQL admin that was installed on uh, their FreeBSD machine, which had not been patched because, like I said, former client. So MySQL admin hadn't been patched. They got in through that. I don't know then if they just waited for things to break or if they broke something relatively subtly themselves. But something else broke, and uh, that former client called me wanting a fix. And when I shelled in, well, the attacker had trojaned the SSH daemon on that machine, so now they had that password. And they used that password to shell into everything I had ever touched using that password, including my home machine, as well as just about every client machine that I had. And uh, like I said, a lesson learned after that Good luck trying to reuse credentials that you managed to get of mine now because they're all unique unless it's just complete garbage I don't care about at all. Okay, this episode is sponsored by the Traceroute podcast. Find it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The inner workings of the internet are fascinating. From fiber optic cables to servers, routers, middleware, and all the physical interconnections. But where do we find the all-important human layer in that tech stack? The award-winning Traceroute podcast is back with its second season to answer that question with some of the most insightful and brilliant technologists of our time. Each episode of the Traceroute podcast will peel back layers of the stack to find the stories about hardware's very real effect on human lives and answer questions like, have we become detached from the tech that supports our daily lives? And what happens when you make tech so accessible and easy that everyone can create something? 
I've just listened to the trailer for the second season, and it sounds like it might be even better than the first. So listen and subscribe to the new season of the Trace Route podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for the Trace Route podcast. 412 Linux writes, Your discussion regarding router rebooting reminded me of a device we used at a previous employer. This was the era of 2008. We serviced long-term care facilities, which tended to be in remote, isolated areas. The only internet connections typically available were residential connections from a myriad of ISPs. As the connections were remote and residential, they tended to go down frequently. In most situations, rebooting the network gear would restore the required connections. Walking a person through restarting these devices, day or night, was a challenge. Enter iBoot. This device would ping a specific endpoint. If it could not reach that endpoint within a specific threshold, boom, it restarted all the networking gear. This lowered our IT-related call volume significantly. Some locations with problematic connections had their connections reset nightly at 3am. This wasn't the correct solution, but boy did it save us time and money and increased customer satisfaction. This is in response to when we talked about that advice to uh, use a smart plug to reboot your router every night or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty common at the time, especially to have you know, a device that would monitor the connection if it goes down, reboot it. Like I even saw some stuff like that in a data center. It's like, it's not that this router we expect to hang or something, but if it does, we'd like something to happen about it first. The only problem with that type of thing is you can get what we call like a second order denial of service attack mm-hmm. where they don't have to denial of service attack your connection and, and have more bandwidth than you. They just have to make your monitoring system not get the answer to that ping and suddenly it's going to reboot all your gear. And uh, guess what network traffic is automatically deprioritized to be below all other network traffic? You guessed it, the lowly ping. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty easy to starve a pipe to the point where pings start not going through. And if you've got a watchdog on that pipe that uses ICMP pings to monitor availability, well, (laughs) you may be restarting things that you shouldn't. But in this particular case, where you've got potentially a contract with a bunch of really remote locations in somewhere big, like a a big state, let's say, in the US, this could save you a lot of money or a lot of time of sending people out to essentially reboot a router. Well, in in this case, they weren't talking about sending someone out so much as just walking somebody through it over the phone, which is a giant pain in the butt. And I get that. I, I completely get that. But again... I mean, yeah, if this is the only thing you can manage, fine. Like, for example, if you're having a problem specifically with the ISP's modem, there's frequently not much you can do about that being unreliable. So, okay, fine. But if the issue is that, like, your own, you know, client-owned routers are locking up, then it's still going to be a better solution to put gear in that isn't a piece of crap in the first place. Yeah, but I just thought it was interesting that there is a use case for this, a potential use case. Yeah even if it was back then, and, and potentially even now, there are use cases for it. It's, it. I don't think it's it's fair to say that it's a blanket, don't do it. I'd say last resort, maybe. Well, it's especially, you know, all of Jim's caveats about just configuring it to happen automatically every 3 a.m. is, you know, these devices can only be power cycled so many times. And you know, especially when it's a, an ungraceful shutdown, you're likely to shorten the life of the device and eventually you're going to make it fail by having done this. So. Maybe once a week is enough, but 
if it's out for hours and it's rebooting the device every 90 seconds, that can really be a problem. This is one of the things that I think the best way to categorize it is to say that, yes, you may be able to save yourself some time and money with a setup like this, but it's the kind of thing that, like, you don't you don't brag about, you know what I mean? Like, you don't recommend anybody else do it. You're like, oh, yeah, this one time I did this really ugly, dirty hack, and, like, it worked well enough to do what I needed it to do. That's kind of your best case scenario for these, in my opinion. Is this a bit like having a network closet full of PoE injectors rather than having a proper PoE switch? Yeah, exactly. Which, as, as Joe mentioned, that like, that's my case right now. I actually have a 24-port PoE smart switch that I really need to deploy in my home network, and I have not yet bothered, and I have a network closet with like five different injectors all plugged into a power strip, snaking out from there to the access points all over the house, and uh, does it work? Yes. Is it a horrible kludge? Yes. Would I recommend that other people do that? No, I don't. That's the typical example of uh, the cobbler's children have no shoes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The last thing I would add is like, we're not trying to scare people. You know, rebooting your router is not going to break it. But, you know, you don't want to reboot your router a thousand times. It's not good for it. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Craig has done. He writes, At the company I work at, we have an old, large mercurial repository that has thousands of branches. We would like to move each of those branches to their own Git repository. Each branch is used, but having it all in one repository obviously does not make sense, and over time, it has become a bit of tech debt. We currently host it ourselves and would like to move it to something managed for us. I know this is a very loaded question and context is missing, but if any of you have any thoughts or opinions about it, please do share. To me, it's not obvious why each branch you would want it to be its own separate Git repository. Git's kind of okay with having thousands of branches, but mm-hmm. if you want it that way, it's, it's fine. I have some interesting Git repositories myself with kind of unrelated branches with all of FreeBSD and all of ZFS mushed together into one branch from the the transition days and so on. Each of those is decades of code history for completely separate repositories all jammed together and it works fine. But either way, that's not really your question. Now, moving to something that's managed, it might turn out to matter there, where if you're having to pay per repository, you maybe not want to pay for a thousand repositories instead of one repository with a thousand branches. I don't have much experience with managed Git. And what does managed Git really mean in this case? Are you just wanting someone to manage the server infrastructure for it, or you want them to actually manage something to do with the Git repositories themselves? I would assume managed Git means something like a GitHub or a GitLab or a Bitbucket versus, you know, literally just having your own private Mm -hmm. Git repo that's all CLI only, doesn't have the bug tracker, you know, doesn't have the communications tools, all that kind of stuff. And um, honestly, my advice for this is pretty much just going to boil down to get started, <laughs> start committing stuff. I mean, that's kind of the way that repos work to begin with. The whole point is it's easy to dump your code in there. Where it gets more complex is if you want to maintain, you know, old metadata. If you want to maintain all of your old mercurial commit history and revision history, then it starts to get more difficult. But 
I typically would tend to come down on the side of don't do that. Just go ahead and check in the current version of your code and, uh, you know, do it in a, just with a, you know, the simple initial commit message. You can copy over a little bit of commit, you know, history manually on those files if you want to later. But it sounds to me like this is more of a just the longer you take thinking about it, the longer you're not actually getting the job done thing. It's just time to get started. Mercurial is new enough that it has really good support for transitioning to Git. So if you get the Git extension for Mercurial itself, then you can actually just HG push the repo into a Git repo and then Git clone it and keep all your version history, which I assume is something you want to do. And a quick Google will come up with four-step instructions for converting a Mercurial repo into a Git one. It's actually pretty straightforward to do. And depending on what the code is, having all that history can be really nice. Having worked with some customers where they did what Jim was describing at some point and just like, oh, when we switch things, we just imported all the code in one big commit that says this is the old, the original version and then built 10 years of history on that. It's like then you get blame a problem back and find us from the original one is like, okay, so somebody changed this 10 years ago and we don't know why anymore. And it can matter. It depends what's in the repo though. And, you know, if you have useful commit messages in the history or if they're all just like fixed thing or <laughs> checked in the date, in which case then, yeah, keeping that history maybe is not so worthwhile. And the really nice thing with things like Git is that sending it to a different repository or switching your hosting is, is quite straightforward to do other than stuff like the bug tracker and so on. But the actual version history would get, you know, my Git checkout of OpenZFS has like 12 different remote repositories. So different GitHubs, different GitLabs, different private Gits, all this stuff. And the fact that I can just push and pull the code from all of them really makes life a lot easier than the olden days with CVS. So beyond that, you know, choosing a, a managed provider really just pulls down to what features you're looking for. And how much you want to spend. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer we can give with no more information than we've been given. I will say that I have been using GitHub for quite some time now. And uh, to my great surprise, I feel that Microsoft has been an excellent steward for it. So I'm continuing to use it pretty happily. Craig also said, and by the way, FPSync worked really well for moving from self-hosted NFS servers on AWS EC2 instances to AWS EFS. Highly recommended to anyone listening that needs to move some data around that they should check out FPSync. And this is something that Craig had asked about previously. So uh, yeah, seems like it worked out nicely. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Tech Life writes, 
I recently came across Adapt when searching for a possible solution for running older Ubuntu and Debian apps on modern versions of the OS. Interesting find in my opinion. Much like ancient Windows apps that ran just fine up until Windows 7 and 10, for the most part, it would be ideal to be able to run older yet quite functional apps in modern versions of Ubuntu without having to spin up a VM. Have any of you worked with it? Seems promising, given that it evolves with each Ubuntu release, as it was created and maintained by Dustin Kirkland. Perhaps others at Canonical. Honestly, I I think the peak time for that as a product might have kind of passed, Because at this point, the first thing that I think of when I think of, well, you know, what would you do to implement a solution like that is, well, it wouldn't be that hard just to make a flat pack for, you know, each version of Ubuntu or Debian or what have you that was open for you to be able to install software inside that flat pack. So from there, you'd either have your flat pack with just ready to install whatever application you need, older version of Debian or Ubuntu, or if it's a popular enough application that only runs on the older version, just flat pack up that version of the application as installed and be able to run it. Yeah, and Snap is the kind of canonical blessed way to do that. And uh, that'll achieve a lot of the same goals as well. Yeah, there's a similar concept in other operating systems, uh, compatibility packages that provide the libraries and so on that were included with a previous version. So that binaries that were built for, you know, the version from 10 years ago will still run today, you know, but realizing that means you're linking against a version of OpenSSL from that long ago. And do you really want to be doing that? I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it depends on what that application is doing, I suppose. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is most useful for two different classes of applications. One, silly little throwaway games that nobody bothered to maintain. And two, incredibly mission-critical applications in business that nobody bothered to maintain. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. I'm on Twitter at jrssnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.